0: This is an AMI podcast. I'm Jyothi Gupta, and this is The Pulse. Let's engage in a thought experiment. If you can, close your eyes. Now, picture a doctor, a nurse, a lawyer, a social worker. How many of you envisioned a person with a disability, especially a visible disability? people with disabilities are conspicuously absent from the above professions. Apart from barriers to entrance exams or in-class accommodations, there are additional, unique challenges to accommodating persons with disabilities in a placement or practicum setting. The biggest obstacle, perhaps, is attitudinal. People with disabilities are often written off based on their disabilities, or must work harder to prove themselves capable in practical settings. But change is rapidly approaching. Today we discuss access within post secondary programs and placements. It's time to put your finger on the pulse. Hello and welcome to The Pulse on AMI-audio. My name is Juita Gupta. If you listen to this program, you know that we come back to the topic of education again and again. We had interviews that talked about access for people who are blind or partially sighted to science, technology and math. So the STEAM fields. You might even remember our conversation with Anna Volker a few weeks ago. And if you don't remember that conversation, you can certainly download the podcast. In that conversation, Anna talked about astronomy and the fact that most people don't actually see the majority of the universe. So why shouldn't astronomy, which is often perceived as a visual field, be made accessible to people who are blind or partially sighted? What's holding them back from fully being engaged as astronomers, even if you are blind? It got me thinking, are there other barriers, attitudinal and structural, that might hold people with disabilities back from pursuing their dreams in professions like nursing or social work, or law for that matter. I know there are some examples, but those are few and far between, of people who have made it successfully in these professions. It goes without saying that we would like to build on our conversation about access to education and see how disabled students fare in placement and practical settings. My guest today is someone you might have heard on AMI-audio before. Michael McNeely is a law student at Osgoode Hall Law School in Toronto. Michael is also a journalist and film critic and can be heard every Friday morning on Now with Dave Brown for a segment called AMI at the Movies. Michael, welcome to The Pulse.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: We know you as a fabulous movie reviewer and critic, but where does the desire to study law come from?
1: It's hard to um, pin it down. But ultimately, I was a high school teacher. First, I um, loved teaching students, but I was teaching a lot of students that had disabilities, and I found out that they weren't getting the support they needed. And it was devastating to me because I was hoping that those students would have a better experience of school than I had. Mm-hmm. And so I decided, you know, to help those students and to help the parents because the parents were the ones coming to terms with the students having disabilities and they were the ones that needed to help the students understand what it was like to have a disability, to help those parents. I wanted to go into law and I wanted to study education law to make sure that everyone could get the accommodations that they were entitled to.
0: So where are you at in your legal studies? Are you just getting started or are you about to wrap up?
1: I'm almost done, surprisingly. Um, I'm in my third year, just about to graduate, and I'm going to be doing the LPP program. It stands for the Law Practice Program. It's offered at and University. Mm-hmm.
0: It's a good program. I've heard good things about it, Michael. Well, I must say congratulations. It's been a long journey for you. But give us an idea, looking back on it, what were some of the experiences that you found rewarding in law school? So what were some of the things that you really enjoyed?
1: I think it's just meeting some of my colleagues. I think some of my colleagues are going to do amazing things in the world and I look forward to um experiencing those. I've never seen such a passionate group of students before. I mean I'm sure I have in teachers college, but I'm I'm older now. I'm I've I went to law school when I was um let's see if I do the math. I was twenty eight or twenty nine when I started and I feel more mature now. I feel like I'm able to appreciate what the world really is, although I'm sure there's aspects of the world that I'm ignorant to. I'm just honored that I got to meet some of these these law students. I've also been privileged to work with some of the professors that I've had, some of the most accommodating people. And as an older older person now, I know that I can talk to my professors about things. Mm-hmm. It's kind of just a different approach to education now.
0: Mm-hmm. That's a really good point. And when you th- when you think about law school, I think what comes to mind is that it is a lot of work. So what are some of the in-class accommodations that were put in place to make sure that you could do all your work and keep up with your peers?
1: Most of the accommodations that I received in law school I also received elsewhere in my universities. So first of all, I asked for enlarged print materials so that I can do the readings. Now, mostly those are just sent to me through the computer, which I can enlarge at home. Sometimes I ask for printouts of the textbooks so that I can highlight them and I can carry them around with me because looking at the computer can be very um, straining. As you know, that's my major accommodation, really. I also have note-taking services that help me in class, and I also have my interveners who assist me with mobility and also some note-taking when it's appropriate for them to do so. I also get extensions on class materials and um, extra time for my exam. So that's that's pretty much the Yeah, It
0: sounds like there's a lot of things that people, even at the undergraduate level, would be able to relate to just in terms of your specific accommodations. But how receptive have you found your professors to the idea that maybe it's not you as an individual that needs accommodating? maybe they need to go back and change their pedagogical approach, so change the way they teach their classes so that the teaching is more inclusive of people with different abilities.
1: It just depends on the professor. Mm. There are some professors that I've met or that I've taken classes with that need a little bit more education in terms of learning how to interact with people with disabilities. Mm -hmm. So for example, as you know, tort, tort law is essentially the law about when people, when people do things to each other, and mm-hmm. it's not necessarily criminal, but it's civil. So like, for example, if I was irresponsible and I got into a car accident, mm-hmm. sometimes the professors will say, you know, oh, this poor victim is a quadriplegic now, or this mm-hmm. poor person will be bound to a wheelchair for the rest of her life. Oh, dear. And... and my heart sinks because those are the teachers, those are the professors that are reinforcing outdated stereotypes about disability. Mm. And um, we've tried, some of my students and some of my fellow students and I have tried to perhaps um, report this this use of language to the dean and also to try and educate people that this language is not appropriate. Mm -hmm. And so I think that's one of the first... Major things that need to change in law school is how we talk about people with disabilities and uh, we need to talk about people with disabilities in a uh, neutral or positive way because mm-hmm. otherwise we're just giving some of the bad stereotypes.
0: The voice that you're listening to is that of Michael McNeely, journalist film critic, and law student at Osgood Hall Law School in Toronto. Michael, I want to talk to you about disclosure. I think it's something that comes up often in the employment setting, but also in an academic setting. When and how should a student with a disability disclose their disability, and who is the right person to disclose to?
1: Well, this is basically, I want to study for the rest of my life. So... Because disclosure is fascinating because we all disclose in different ways and in different times. I think for the record, there's no right way to do it. There's probably better ways to do it than others, but mm-hmm. it's a crapshoot basically because mm-hmm. you're taking your chances. You're taking your chances with who you who you trust with the information that you provide. Mm-hmm. So, for example, if talking about those professors I mentioned before, um, they're the ones that see disability as a negative so if you if you disclose to them, then they may see you as a negative as well and they may feel pity for you or they may talk to you in a um, condescending way. Mm-hmm. So what's the point of even telling them in the first place? Mm-hmm. But the point is if you don't tell anyone, you're not going to get the accommodations that you need mm-hmm. because, um, as you know, we from the um, secondary school the, the school board is responsible for implementing um, accommodations, but when you get to post-secondary, no longer there's no school board, so mm-hmm. you have to get your own accommodations. Typically, the first way to do that would be to go to your Disability Services and to have a um, confidential meeting with a counselor, and hopefully you can trust the counselor, and then you can request the accommodations as well as provide medical documentation for your entitlement to those accommodations.
0: So, Michael, we know that if you're a law student, the placements that you undergo during your time in law school are a big component of your education. What sort of an experience would you say overall you've had with student placements?
1: I would say that I've had a difficult experience because sometimes I'm not accommodated and it's in part because the accommodations that I'm used to requesting are accommodations in a classroom. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: And when it comes to getting experience in the real world, put quotation marks around that, it becomes a different matter because I'm not sure exactly what I can ask for
0: Mm
1: -hmm. or what the situation is like. Because, for example, if if you're going to the farm for the first time, you're going to do some work. You may not know what that work is like. And so how do you request accommodations for something that you don't know Mm -hmm. will happen? Right. And then by the time it's already started happening, it may be too late or you may feel uncomfortable to uh, ask for accommodations because, you know, the the routine has already been established. And so it can be tough to ask. Right.
0: Michael... One of the things that I've noticed about placements is that there are so many people involved. There's faculty, placement supervisors. There's a lot of people who need to communicate with each other to make the placement successful. Does this added layer of communication make accommodations a little more complex for a student with disabilities?
1: Yes, I would say for sure. It's probably best that all communication be streamlined to one person who can deal with the um, conversations in a confidential way. So, for example, I was talking about um, disability services counselors. Mm -hmm. So, ideally, they would be one of the first points of contact to talk to about accommodations. But Mm -hmm. the trouble is is that the counselors often don't have enough experience to help students with accommodations in placements. Mm -hmm. So, it's all very complicated because everyone seems to be responsible for a different part of the experience. Mm -hmm. But ultimately, for the students' well-being, it should be one person, and that one person should be in charge of ensuring that the accommodations are implemented successfully.
0: Mm -hmm. Now, I know you wrote a paper about student placements and the experience of students with disabilities seeking placements in professions like nursing and social work, and also you looked at the law. What was the state of existing research about this topic
1: the state of assistant research is that it's ongoing it's started to be an interest in this topic and what's interesting though is that all those disciplines, despite having different subject um subject parameters mm-hmm. um the experiences of students with disabilities are mostly the same mm. they're mostly confused they're mostly unsure about what accommodations they're entitled to they're not sure where to report to they're not sure how they're going to be evaluated. And overall, the experience is pretty pretty miserable for them. Mm. And so it's interesting to see these commonalities across the board for all these disciplines.
0: So in light of your experience and your research, Michael, what are the ingredients of a successful student internship or student placement for a student with a disability?
1: That's a good question. I believe the first ingredient is a mentor who has been through the experience before Mm -hmm. and presumably due to low low numbers of people with disabilities, it may not be a person with a disability, but it could be someone who is marginalized in one way or another Mm -hmm. and can sympathize with the student with a disability's position. Mm -hmm. I think that's very important because there's been times where I felt like I want to give up, and I need to keep going. Mm-hmm. I need to find a way to keep going, and I need to know that other people have been through it too. Mm-hmm. so I would say that's extremely important, um as I mentioned before, just having a singular point of contact because it's hard to talk about your it's hard to talk about your disability, and so you want to be able to do it in a constructive way, because I know if I talk to someone about my disability, um, one time I may have enough energy to do that. But if I know I have to talk about my disability five different times with five different people in the course of a single day mm-hmm. and two of them may have a negative attitude, then I'm not – my My optics are not looking great. Mm-hmm. So I want someone who is sensitive to my needs and someone who can listen to what I have to say and someone who has some experience at least mm-hmm. getting me the accommodations that I need. And I'm not saying that this is the same person as a mentor. This is a different person. Just to make that clear. So there should be two different people in your corner Mm -hmm. that you can trust. One person that does the practical implementation and the other person helps you kind of spiritually. Mm -hmm. Also, I think it's very important to have a good placement supervisor, to have someone who is also sensitive Mm -hmm. and for confidentiality reasons. This person may not need to know about your disability, but this person should be able to accommodate so if I can back up, I can perhaps explain some of that. Mm-hmm. Um, for example, you know, I'm deafblind, but I may not need to state that I'm deafblind. I can state that I need things in large print and I have that I need some assistance with communicating. Mm-hmm. And that could be all sorts of reasons for that. I could have autism. I could have a learning disability. I could um, have a headache. Mm-hmm. But, Maybe it's none of the other person's business to know exactly what my disability is or how I acquire that disability because that's invasive. Mm -hmm. And so this is within the law. And ironically enough, this is what the law school placements should have to conform to Mm -hmm. as well as all the other placements down the road.
0: Right. Now, you said you brought up attitudinal barriers and one of the attitudinal barriers that seems to stick – our perceptions of a student with a disability about their perceived abilities or lack of abilities in the profession itself, how do we try to erode some of these attitudinal barriers?
1: Great question. Um, I liked what you were just saying in your essay about people who were studying astronomy and who do not need to have vision. Mm-hmm. I would like to listen to that podcast. Um, but... For example, you probably noticed in my research I studied um, nursing students, and Mm -hmm. I studied um, students that were using wheelchairs or students that had maybe less physical abilities than others, Mm -hmm. and they were still able to be competent nurses. It's just a matter of framing the work around what they are able to do to reduce attitudinal barriers. I think it's important to first look at the expectations of what is required for the student to master at the end of the placement, so for a nursing student, there's an expectation that you will be able to take a pulse, you'll be able to understand health indicators, you'll be able to advise on treatments and medicine that's required. so mm-hmm. a person with a disability could do all those things mm-hmm. with accommodation, mm-hmm. and so it's important to realize that accommodations are not are not expensive, they don't take away from other things. They are just a fact of life for people, and people need to have access to those accommodations.
0: Michael, you must be reading my mind because one of the things I wanted to ask you about is this perception from supervisors and faculty members that reasonable accommodations for students with disabilities somehow take away from academic integrity or take away from assessing core competencies in a program. How do we alleviate those concerns?
1: We can tell them all to disappear. Now, I'm sure we probably don't want to tell them to disappear <laughs> on air, but I'm sure you get what I mean. Yeah. Um, I want to use an example for you. In law school, we have exams. Our exams are three hours long, mm-hmm. and they involve reading two cases, two, two stories, and we have to talk about the legal issues of those two stories. So when I was talking to a lawyer that I had an opportunity to work with, he basically said, that's not like the real world. We don't ask you to do cases where we lock you up in a room and you have three hours to solve all the legal issues.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: So I'm hoping that through this example, you can see that examinations are different than how we do things in the real world. And in fact, we should probably assess students on how we do things in the real world. But exams are kind of like a glorified process that are supposed to draw on the intellect, mm-hmm. but they actually end up excluding a lot of people because all those people are necessarily – who to conform to an expectation of doing things in school as opposed to doing things in the real world. Yeah.
0: And, of course, in your paper, you talked about expanding the criteria for professional competency. So you say, you know, saying that you need to be able to talk to patients excludes people with disabilities. But saying that you have to communicate with patients makes it broader and more inclusive of people with disabilities. Do I have that right?
1: Yes, I do. And also, I feel like if you have a person with a disability on your team, that person will know how to work with other people. That may be better at specific things. Mm -hmm. So it's just a matter of becoming a proficient delegator and also a team player, and there's no reason why. And again, in my research, I've also um discovered that you may have all these professional competencies, but there's no way they're going to expect one person to do them all mm-hmm. in the real world. So as long as you get to master the most important ones, I think that's what we're looking for in terms of um being competent for the job. But furthermore, I would also argue that faculty and placement advisors are not gatekeepers. Mm -hmm. So therefore, they should not be gatekeepers. They're not the ones that make hiring decisions. Mm -hmm. So somebody down the road may be a person with a disability who's making hiring decisions, and that's the person we're worried about pleasing. Mm -hmm. We shouldn't be worried about pleasing a faculty supervisor. Mm -hmm. That's all I need to say because those are the people that are not making hiring decisions.
0: I'm speaking to Michael McNeely, journalist, film critic, and a student at Osgoode Hall Law School in Toronto, talking about his experience with student placements. Michael, you mentioned you were teaching high school. You went through teacher training. How was your experience with a placement as part of your teacher training different from your experience in law school?
1: Sadly, I was told as a teacher that I was too disabled to teach special ed. (sighs) We should probably let that sink in for two minutes. Wow. Because that has stayed with me for the rest of my life and it will stay with me until the day I die. Mm-hmm. I've also been asked how I could be a lawyer mm-hmm. if I'm a person with a disability.
0: That's so,
1: shocking. I mean honestly keep these opinions to yourself. Don't give me the emotional labour of dealing with those things because mm-hmm. that's just outdated and eeriness. But I didn't feel I didn't feel like those mm-hmm. people were mistaken at the time. I felt, oh my God, what am I doing here? Am I in the right place? Am I am I am I am I even appreciated for who I am? Mm. And so it's interesting to go from one profession to another, and both professions require different skills and then to be told the same thing. Yeah. That you don't belong here.
0: That's hard.
1: And so um if I'm being told that, then what are the other people being told? And that's that's the scariest thing for me.
0: I want to talk to you a bit about trust, Michael. You've written that trust is pivotal to accommodations. What role does trust play in the accommodation process for students with disabilities in the
1: placement setting? Well, trust is the most important thing, I think, because you're looking at someone that's going to provide you with a service that will help you do what you need to do. If that person is not able to provide you with a service, then where are you? What what options do you have now? Yeah. So it's kind of, you know, when, you know, unfortunately people are in a very affordable position when they ask for accommodations. And so it's it's fascinating to watch people strategize because they're the strategizing for the right reasons. They're strategizing, especially if you're a woman with a disability, you're trying to figure out who can best help you and who is not going to use that information against you. Mm. And it's a, scary, it's a scary situation sometimes because you don't know who you can reach out to and who you can ask for help. Mm -hmm. So I think that's really the core of the issue.
0: Michael, I want to end on a positive note. We can both acknowledge that there are challenges for students with disabilities in professions like nursing or social work, teaching or in the law. But by including people with disabilities in these professions, what is the benefit to the profession itself? How does it make the profession more relevant and more accessible to the general population.
1: Well, we all going to be disabled at some point. Mm-hmm. Um, I can hear the screams in the background. <laughs> but um, don't you want people that have disability experience in positions of power that can help you with your own disability? I think so. Mm-hmm. I think it's not just people with disabilities. It's also people who are racialized, people who are marginalized, people who are, come from different countries and different walks of life. We need to encourage them all to into into all these professions because we need to see ourselves. We need to see ourselves in order to feel that we are confident in the services that we are being provided with. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I don't want to be a Debbie Downer. I don't want to be a cynical person, even though sometimes I am. I just want to say that, you know, there are a lot of barriers. But also, it's important for people to go and crash into those barriers because – Otherwise, those barriers are going to stay up in the first place. Mm -hmm. And um, if people need hope, if people need reassurance, then there's always others to help them and there's always others to guide. And I hope that, you know, people don't give up because if we give up, they win, and we can't allow that to happen, right?
0: Exactly. Michael, talking to you has given me so much hope and joy and optimism for the future, Thank you very much for all that you do and for being on The Pulse today. Thank you. That was Michael McNally, who is a law student at Osgoode Hall Law School in Toronto. Michael is also a journalist and film critic and can be heard every Friday morning on Now with Dave Brown. I think that Professions like nursing and law and teaching do in fact benefit from the inclusion of people with disabilities. It's not just the right thing to do, but as Michael pointed out, more people are growing older, they are acquiring disabilities. And by reflecting the general population, within these so-called helping professions, I think we can make the profession more relevant. And it's time we start perceiving people with disabilities as peers rather than as clients or patients. I think it allows for greater empathy and also provides mentors for people with disabilities, as Michael pointed out so correctly. But more importantly, it allows these professions to ask and answer some critical questions and come up with creative solutions. So I really hope that this conversation has been fruitful for you. I hope you'll check out the podcast if you missed any. Any of it, or head on over to AMI.ca forward slash on the Pulse. Thanks. I would like to thank Michael McNeely for being my guest today. The Pulse is produced by Andrea Delanerol. Sam Robinson is our technical producer. Andy Frank is our manager at AMI-audio. We would love to get your feedback on the program. Write to feedback at AMI.ca. Find us on Twitter at AMI-audio. Use the hashtag Pulse AMI or give us a call at 1-866-509-4545. That's 1-866-509-4545. And let us know if we have your permission to play the audio on the program. Thank you very much for being a part of this journey. We'll bring you more content about education as the weeks and months go by. Thanks for listening to The Pulse on AMI-audio. I've been your host, Jyothi Gupta. Have a wonderful rest of your day. This was an AMI podcast. For more accessible media, visit AMI.ca. I'm Margaret Shepard of the AMI podcast, Tripping On Air. Every month, my co-host, Alex Hajar, and I spill the tea on what it's really like
1: to live with MS. Watch Tripping On Air on YouTube or download wherever you get your pods.